Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Susie Ahn, in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, WBEZ's podcast for news, politics, arts, and culture. In her memoir, What My Bones Know, author Stephanie Fu writes about her experience with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or what's known as CPTSD. Fu didn't receive the diagnosis until she was in her late 20s, but when it was revealed to her, she realized it explained many of her struggles with mental health, relationships, and trauma. Along with her memoir, Stephanie Fu has been a radio producer for shows such as Snap Judgment, This American Life, 99% Invisible, and more. So first, Stephanie, um, I'm I'm glad at the beginning of the book, you note there is going to be a happy ending, which I appreciated because there is just so much in this book um, that is heartbreaking and deeply personal. At what point did you decide you wanted to write about this and, and get this out there? Yeah, well, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD in 2017. And in my work at places like This American Life, I knew the the impact of a first-person narrative and learning about somebody else's journey and how that could make somebody feel more humanized, more normal, uh, less shameful. And so immediately after getting diagnosed with complex PTSD, I started looking for that first-person narrative, and I just could not find any stories about people like me. Instead, I found a lot of really um, stigmatizing clinical uh, stuff on complex PTSD that sort of painted a picture of people who are broken or really Mm -hmm. consistently struggling. So I told myself if I was able to figure out a way to heal from complex PTSD, that I would share my own story of healing. Well, uh, and and I want to note that um, you got that diagnosis um, from your therapist of eight years, um, mm-hmm. which which I, I read in the book. It just it kind of took you back that it, it took eight years for you to hear this. Yeah. What, what was going through your mind at that moment? Um, not a whole lot because I didn't know what CPTSD was. I'd never heard of it. And so I was like, uh, okay, PTSD, sure, I guess I had a pretty bad childhood. But I also was like, why didn't you tell me for eight years? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess my uh, therapist's hesitancy to tell me, I think, contributed to stigmatizing it more. And she told me, you know, I was I was afraid about how you would take it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, God, does that mean that this is really, really horrible? Yeah. Well, uh, of course, I, uh, folks are familiar with PTSD, um, but maybe not so much with CPTSD. Um, can you talk about the difference in, in what you learned about the two disorders? Yeah. So you can get traditional PTSD from a single traumatic event. So let's say you were in a car accident. You could get PTSD from that. Um, 
Complex PTSD is when the trauma happens over and over and over again, hundreds of times over the course of years. And so that that would be sort of like if you were in a car accident every week for years. Mm. Um, And unless you have really, really terrible luck, that's probably not going to happen to you um, unless, you know, you're in a sort of relationship with an abusive person or in a child abuse situation or maybe growing up in a war zone, that kind of thing. Yeah. And could you talk about, um, you know, where your CPTSD stems from? Um, you, you had a, a traumatic upbringing. Yeah. Um, my parents were very abusive, uh, physically and emotionally, and they both abandoned me to, for separate families. So I was sort of living by myself by the time I was 16. Mm-hmm. And and something that you detail in the book is that it, it was a, a struggle to find a therapist, even in New York City where, where you were living. Um, what made this so difficult? Yeah, so complex PTSD um, is treated differently than traditional PTSD because if you're being traumatized that much, it probably means that somebody who you're supposed to be able to trust is letting you down. Like human beings are really letting you down. Um, So you sort of have trouble relationally and you have trouble trusting people Um, and learning to rebuild that trust, uh, learning that you yourself are worthy and that you don't deserve the abuse that you're getting. That's sort of a different journey than a lot of PTSD traditional treatments. Um, But complex PTSD isn't in the DSM yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not officially recognized by a lot of um, hospitals, caretakers. It's it's recognized by the VA. It's recognized by the NHS, by the World Health Organization, but for some reason not in the DSM in America. So that just makes the finding affordable treatment for it really, really difficult. Yeah, and DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. Um, mm-hmm. Good job. <laughs> it, it's a mouthful. Um, so what did what did you discover? I mean, it, you know, you went through um, this journey of of finding. Um, mental health services, what did you discover about our health insurance system through seeking recovery? Yeah, I learned that when it comes to mental health, you know, complex treatment for complex PTSD can take a long time. It can take years. Um, It can take touch-ups maybe for the rest of your life. But um, in our mental health care system, it's sort of like, okay, you have depression, and so that should be fixed in 16 sessions or whatever it is. So you get, um, you're able to book 16 sessions with a therapist and you go through those and hopefully you're done with them by by the time that's all over. I also realized that um, a lot of therapists, particularly a lot of therapists who treat complex PTSD don't accept insurance, Mm -hmm. um, primarily because rates for, um, insurance rates for therapists haven't been increased in about 20 years, which means that therapists are getting paid very little if they rely on insurance compensation um, for treating mental health. So it, it just means that if you really want to get good health care in this country, it's going to cost you a lot. Um, a lot of people aren't trained 
in mm-hmm. this sort of trauma treatment. And so it just becomes this arduous journey of going from person to person, trying to save money to, to spend on be yeah. therapists, wasting money on therapists that don't work. It's a broken system and it really is leaving people who aren't wealthy, um, white educated Americans with very limited support. Yeah. This is Reset. I'm Susie On in for Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with author and radio producer Stephanie Fu. We're discussing her memoir, What My Bones Know, which details her struggle with complex PTSD and her recovery. Stephanie, one way that you coped with your mental health struggles prior to receiving a diagnosis was uh, by throwing yourself into work, which uh, many listeners are familiar with. Um, What was it about a career that that served as a refuge? You know, I think that when people define resilience, um, they're often looking at at resilience through a very capitalistic lens. When people um, talk about people who have healed from depression or PTSD and gone on to become happy, productive members of, of society, they interview doctors or lawyers or nurses, people who are, who are doing very well financially. And so the, more, the harder your upbringing and the more successful you are now, it seems like the more resilient you are. And so I thought that I could hide the trauma and the mental illness that I was suffering from by just becoming as successful as possible. And it, and it worked, you know, it, it seemed to, people seem to be like, well, you have your life so together because here you are, you're a producer at This American Life, you know, mm-hmm. whereas behind the scenes, uh, there's some triggering moments. Well. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, becoming a workaholic is like any other addiction. Um, it prevents you from perhaps getting the help that you may need because you're focusing so much on this one potentially very stressful, mentally unproductive thing. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, you note in the book, just some, some triggering moments related to work um, and, um, you know, having to step away from it uh, for your recovery, Um, having now finished this book and, and, you know, having time to reflect on your relationship to work during that time, um, how do you relate to work and your career aspirations now? I think of it as a way that I need I need to make money yeah. <laughs> um, rather than a, a way to define myself. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I'm still really proud of my, my book and my work, and I really try to do good work that sheds light on mental health and um, enables people to get the help they need. Um, but I also take breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't let my work define me as much. And I have increased value on rest, on friendship, on family, and on human connection, um, primarily. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, what defines me as a good person, not the quality of the last story that yeah. I did that came out something all of us probably should hear and uh, take with us in our lives. Um, something I, I found interesting um, was was the many methods you ended up finding useful um, and uh, just different things that you tried. You, you write about, for example, a type of therapy called 
EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. Um, can you explain I'm so what sorry that is? That I'm making you like say all of these. Long <laughs> you know, when acronyms. I read when I read the book, I was just well, we're just going to go with EMDR. <laughs> but um, <laughs> can you explain what that is and and what it did for you? Yeah. So nobody honestly really understands how EMDR works. There's theories, but it works. Um, and basically, it's kind of, there's different ways of doing it. It's kind of like going through your uh, toughest memories and reliving them and reprocessing them. But at the same time, keeping your eyes open and following a finger as it moves back and forth in front of your face. Or for me, I held buzzers that were buzzing in my hands. Yeah. The idea is that it sort of keeps you grounded and your brain in sort of a rational space at the same time as you're going back and accessing some of these really hard memories. And so I think I was able to access my memories with more um, clarity and um, less emotion and more like, perspective than mm-hmm. I ever had and, and see like the, that the sort of gravitas of what mm-hmm. had happened to me before I'd always looked at traumatic moments. And I was like, yeah, well, that wasn't so bad. I was just a kid, no big deal, whatever. And when I went back and revisited some of those memories with EMDR, I was like, wow, that was really messed up and that should not have happened to a child. And it sort of helped me take better care of that inner child and of myself. Yeah. Yeah. And and you you revisit um, sort of that inner child um, at, at a number of points in the book. And and also part of the book involves you returning to your hometown in San Jose and, and speaking with teachers and former classmates about the past. Why did you decide to return and what did you discover in those conversations? Yeah, so I knew that trauma sort of can influence memory. And I couldn't, I'm a journalist, I couldn't really fact check the childhood abuse that I mm-hmm. received alone with my parents because they denied it. So, but I did remember that I belonged to a community of kids who were similarly abused in their homes. And so I wanted to see if my trauma wasn't just personal, it was communal and what that looked like. And so I went back to San Jose and I spoke to former classmates and former teachers and more importantly, the current um, counselor at my old high school, Piedmont Hills Mm -hmm. High School. Um, And she related that, you know, she had so many kids still at Piedmont Hills who were being physically abused that she could not count them. Yeah. And I think a big reason for that is that um, it's a majority minority community. My high school is like 60% Asian, 30% Latino. Um, and a lot of the parents of my peers were refugees. Some of my peers were refugees um, from mm-hmm areas that experienced real severe conflict. Um, They'd escaped the Vietnam War, um, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Korean War, and come to America. And a lot of our parents were really struggling with the repercussions of their own trauma and passing that on to us. Yeah. I mean, as uh, I'm an Asian woman and um, I, you know, I did not have a traumatic upbringing, but there were parts of that that felt so familiar um, in terms of generational trauma, um, you know, what what did you discover in terms of methods to to address that? Um, where does one even start? Um, 
I actually had a story come out um, on Invisibilia a couple weeks ago, and it was just on Up First on Sunday. Um, that follows um, an organization in San Jose that treats Khmer Rouge survivors mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. survivors of, like, one of the most traumatic experience possibly <laughs> that you could endure, which is genocide. Um, and it required a lot of culturally responsive therapy that required breaking a lot of the rules of traditional therapy because there is so much stigma around receiving therapy in the Asian community, which I'm sure you're well aware of. Um, we needed to create therapy that was fun for elders to attend, that was mm-hmm. that was adaptive to their needs. And so one of the therapists there, for example, would sort of just take people to a doctor's appointments and translate for them, translate at their, at their children's um, schools, and literally just make friends with them for up mm-hmm. to two years before wow. he even began asking them, so what's your trauma? Yeah. Just had, he needed to have that, that foundation of trust that came with deep interpersonal connection before he could begin that yeah. form of therapy. So having flexible, open therapy like that, I mean, it's also really community-oriented. Mm-hmm. It also was really focused on teaching parents um, great parenting trip, tip, tri- <laughs> tips and tricks yeah. um, to better connect with their children in America. Um, you know, like, hey, maybe don't hit your kids. Maybe... Um, an A minus is okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 And well, I mean, obviously, the subject matter of this book is is quite heavy. Um, but I'm sure um, something that that folks could relate to what what sort of responses are you getting from audiences? It's been overwhelmingly so positive. Um, a lot of people are saying that it's the first, I mean, it is really the first, first person narrative about Having complex PTSD, it's certainly the first book by a woman of color about it and, and an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lots of people are writing just saying, like, thank you for creating a narrative around this that is hopeful, that has real solutions in it, that is making me not feel ashamed anymore of having complex PTSD, which is what I really wanted. I really yeah. wanted to have a story that showed that healing is possible and joy is possible. Connection is possible. And um, that this is something that will probably affect you your whole life, but it doesn't have to define you. Yeah. I, really quickly, Stephanie, I, I mean, in the book, you, you write about cutting ties with your parents. Uh, after this book came out, um, have you heard from them? Or does that even matter to you? I have not. Um in some ways, I guess I felt like it would be really nice for my parents to finally sort of listen to me mm-hmm. <laughs> and understand me uh, by reading the book. But they haven't read it. I didn't expect them to really, so alas. And, you know, no, no spoiler here, but you, you have found a family and it's, uh, and, and it's the love that you were looking for. Yes. Um the ha- part of the happy ending is that with the help of of therapy and self-awareness and a lot of hard work, I've been able to find a really loving, supportive family who I really feel like an inherent part of. Mm-hmm. 
and that gives me the kind of love that I did not receive as a child. And I, I loved reading that part. Uh, that's Stephanie Fu, radio producer and author of the memoir, What My Bones Know. Stephanie, thank you so much and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrew Merriweather and was edited by Ethan Schwab. Want more interviews with fascinating authors? Then consider subscribing to our podcast. We've got tons of great conversations with artists, writers, and musicians for you to enjoy. And when you subscribe, don't forget to leave us a rating. That's it for Reset. I'm Susie Ann, and for Sasha Ann Simons, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.